Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblack, and I'm joined by Ryan Aris and Dr. Joe Boot. And uh, we're glad to be with you uh, this week. And we we began last week's episode with uh, some some celebrations of uh, various pieces of information. One of them being that Joe has just released his book for the Kingdom of God. The second being the birth of uh, my son Aaron, my fifth son. But we have uh, more uh, celebrations in store for us this week, as our premier Doug Ford has announced that as of March 2022. All COVID restrictions will be over, and I know Joe and Ryan are very excited. Very, uh, very confident. Yeah. <laughs> Bishop Doug has we look uh, spoken with great expectation and unfailing trust. <laughs> <laughs> Only I, five more months, really. It, that's it. Does How that many months? Hunker down. How many months until the election? About the same, I think. <laughs> yeah. Is that suspicious? Uh, do you think? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think Joe said earlier that uh, uh, Premier Ford's announcement had more caveats than commitments, and uh, I think he's right. We'll we'll see. Mm. <laughs> that, uh, that was a pretty big, uh, pretty big hedge he was trying to to construct there in that announcement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've uh, we've learned to be a little bit skeptical over these promises over the last twenty months. So we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned there uh, Joe's book for the Kingdom of God. Uh, I know it's been uh, selling very well around here. Ryan, any states left uh, on the map that need to be taken off still? Hawaii, <laughs> Hawaii. We're Come looking on, at you. Hawaii. Okay, get you on need it. To Hawaii. Show for us. <laughs> Maybe we should go there and and, and, <laughs> yeah. and sell some on, oh, on a, a, on a special yeah. missionary visit. That's a good good uh, yeah work related uh, <laughs> expense. <laughs> <laughs> Don't start talking uh, about seed money or anything, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is getting there. We'd probably be reduced to uh, you know a small um, indigenous vessel at this point. Oh, that, that's probably true. We get a uh, get ourselves <laughs> canoed across. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, the always uh, difficult transition here, but <laughs> we'll do our best to transition to our conversation. On reformational thinking. You just got to like pull the handbrake on that one. That's all you can do. There's no elegant way to to (laughs) move across. But as uh, as for today's conversation, what we we hope to dig into is uh, probably the two concepts we reference more than any others uh, here at the Ezra Institute are uh, Herman Doiverd's teaching on uh, the modal aspects of reality. And we know we've referred to those often uh, throughout this season. Uh, but we also talk at length about Abraham Kuyper's teaching on sphere sovereignty. And uh, we've had uh, many questions uh, from listeners wondering about how, how do these two concepts connect? Do they connect? Uh, Herman Doiverd was obviously influenced by Abraham Kuyper in some ways, but how exactly? And, uh, you know, as we continue to, d- to discuss reformational thinking, we're hoping to make uh, those connections clear uh, to you today. So, Joe, why don't we begin... Uh, just by a quick discussion, a quick review of, uh, of sphere sovereignty and, and some of uh, Abraham Kuyper's uh, contributions. 
Mm-hmm. Well, in a in a couple of weeks, we'll be getting to those questions too, uh, more That's directly. Right. right. So yeah, there's been quite a lot of different questions. We're not uh, we're not ignoring them. We're we're collating them. We're and, saving them. Yeah, and we will try and sort of um, tackle as many as we can in a, in a, in a single episode. Um, I think maybe a, a a good place to begin is just to you know to to, to recap where we've been and and uh, and remind people that uh, this isn't sort of a a purely academic theoretical exercise, but you know we're in the grip of a of mm. a cultural struggle right now, which right. makes these issues and perhaps especially the principle of sphere sovereignty so critically important. Um, and remembering too that at the ro- the root of reformational thinking is this this recognition that the heart of mm. the human person uh the the root unity in the language of reformational uh philosophy of the human person is the inner man or the spirit that the bible speaks about that goes before all of these different ways in which human we as human beings function in that sense, transcends them. And it's there that the work of the Holy Spirit is so critical in regeneration, in transforming the root of our being so that there's a redirection um, of our entire lives in Christ. And as Christians, um, in that uh, new birth, in the redirection of our hearts, we mm-hmm. are, there's a, a transformation has taken place. There's a new birth. It's that radical. Um, but it t- takes time to work out all the implications of that new birth in our lives. And that's why we're, as Paul says in Romans 12, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so the things that we're talking about uh, today and, and in the podcast these last few weeks and as we go forward are fundamentally about that process of renewal mm-hmm. and and transformation in our minds so that we can think Christianly, which is another phrase we like like mm-hmm. to use mm-hmm. because the prerequisite of Christian um, thinking is a Christian mind. Uh, that's what we're trying to develop. And of course, the prerequisite of any kind of Christian action is uh, Christian thinking. So until we uh, begin to really uh, think through these issues uh, rightly, it's difficult to see how we can get to consistent Christian action. So Christian world and life view thinking is really about how do we work out our faith with fear and trembling in such a way that is consistent mm. uh, in all these branches and every aspect of our lives and not somehow imprisoned in maybe our personal devotions or, or, or in the life of the family or even the church institute. Um, well, one of the, um, I know that next week we're going to be talking a fair bit about the Reformation because right. of Reformation uh, Day. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your question about Kuiper and, and sphere sovereignty, it's interesting that Kuiper pointed out, he said, and I quote now, the dominating principle, uh, he's referring to the Calvinistic side of the Reformation, was not soteriologically justification by faith, but in the widest sense, cosmologically, the sovereignty of the triune God over the whole cosmos in all its spheres and kingdoms, visible and invisible. Uh, That is quite a different understanding um, than what is typical when people think about the Reformation Mm. uh, today in very narrow terms about a few dogmatic uh, theological points. Um, Kuiper is pointing into its widest sense, the, the the sovereignty of the triune God in all its spheres and kingdoms, visible and invisible and uh 
in in terms of the connection uh, between the between the two, uh, there's a something that uh, Doyverd himself uh, wrote early in his career. Um, uh, I'm quoting to you now uh, something that uh, Doyverd himself uh, uh, wrote. He said, "Calvinism, as Dr. Kuiper demonstrated in his Stone lectures." Uh, just a quick parenthesis there. That's the famous um, set of lectures, lectures on Calvinism, lectures on Calvinism. Uh, which um, are we would we would thoroughly recommend to mm. our listeners to mm. read as a great introduction. Uh, as he demonstrated in his Stone lectures, is not merely this is Calvinism is not merely a theological system, but it contains within itself the tremendous vitality of a complete world and life view. It encompasses a profound philosophical life perspective, offers the basic contours of a distinctive epistemology, that's theory of knowledge, a distinctive theory of science, a distinctive psychology, a distinctive view of history, a distinctive legal theory, a distinctive political theory. And the root of this vitality does not reside in Calvin, but in the immeasurable depth of God's word, Mm. in Calvin's recognition of divine sovereignty in a very special and pregnant sense, over the whole of creation. Mm. So uh, Kuiper makes that fundamental and, and critically important point. Uh, and uh, Doiver then, in indicating his own influences as he develops his reformational thinking, um, based on this principle of sphere sovereignty, mm. uh, roots himself in the same notion, the absolute sovereignty of God, and that it isn't simply narrowly about justification by faith. Right. It is ultimately about the sovereignty of the triune God over all spheres and kingdoms, mm. every aspect of life in all its parts, so that we begin to develop a Christian world and life view. Right. And so that's the, the sort of critical, um, pivotal moment, if you will, uh, in uh, actually what uh, I think Kuiper was really at that stage contributing. It's not that the notion of world and life view was somehow new um, uh, in the sense that nobody before Kuiper had a world and life view. It was the new language that mm-hmm. was being, I mean, uh, if you could sort of uh, go back to the Puritans in the post-Reformation era and look at the thinking of Knox, and we'll talk about him next. I want to talk about him next next week. Uh, you can see that the contours of this Calvinistic world and life view taking shape, but Kuiper begins actually this response to modernity uh, 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 that was so vital uh, in and and deals with it in the in the uh, deals with their language, deals with their concepts that, of course, the Puritans couldn't have anticipated. Hmm. And a lot of this really militates against any kind of privileging of theology, is a concept we talked about uh, a few hmm. weeks back. That's the beauty of the of, of Kuiper and and actually the ultimate principle of the Reformation. I mean, Calvin himself uh, was the one who deprivileged the clergy, in the sense that uh, he affirmed a, a priesthood of all believers and and mm. sanctified every vocation unto God. Uh, of course, the didn't delegitimize or reduce the significance and the value and of the calling of uh, church leadership. Mm. Um, but recognize that all of creation and every life sphere is to be made holiness to the Lord. Mm. 
And Joe, this book you've got in front of you, uh, just before you walked into the cellar, Ryan and I commented how often we see that book in front of you. <laughs> Maybe you want to <laughs> yeah. share the title with our listeners. Yeah, so so a, a sort of... You, one does have to be careful in talking about <laughs> any book as an introduction sure, to, sure. Uh, to 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 Doiverd, um, because especially when it's been written by Doiverd himself, which this one is, mm-hmm. uh, a Christian theory of social institutions is the title. I've mentioned it before, mm-hmm. but it's his most. I would say it's his most readable, um, uh, his most readable introduction yeah, to. Right. The, the, the theory of social so, institutions. So but here, I'm not Joe, suggesting not, not readable. However, <laughs> it's most readable. <laughs> I'm not suggesting it's the easiest place to start. Yeah. I'm just saying that, that it, it's his most readable discussion of this particular topic. Right. Um, and uh, as has once been jibed by the by some Dutch thinkers um, when 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 asked about um, that the Doiverd had not been found in a good English translation yet. The, the, with the comeback was he hasn't been translated into Dutch yet either. A um, little bit harsh, but uh, but 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 fair to to, to some degree. Um, so when we recommend some of these titles, uh, we are sort of trying to give the caveat that we're not suggesting right. this the the you know the most easiest place to start. In fact, I would say that perhaps pick up. Um, one of the books that we make available, I think, with Ezra Press right now, although it's not published by Ezra Press, and that would be um, Wisdom for Thinkers. Wisdom for right. Thinkers. By yeah. uh, Willem Auernail. So, Joe, Nate, t- Nate mentioned at the beginning that uh, we talk about two things uh, pretty regularly here. That's sphere sovereignty, which is often uh, identified with Kuiper, and the modal aspects, which are something that Doi would... Uh, mm. I don't know. I don't want to say popularized, but he, uh, <laughs> he articulated, uh, sure, <laughs> identified. Um, for for anyone who's been listening, and for even for Nathan and I, as we sit here and talk about it, these these are not the same thing. But as as you think about it, and as you mm-hmm. sort of uh, pay attention to them week in week out, there there seem to be some some parallels at least, or some. Uh, some similarities, or yeah. maybe you can just uh, spend a little more time talking about how we got from uh, Calvin and the Reformers uh, through to Kuiper and uh, what's often called Neo-Calvinism, mm-hmm. and then into Doyaword and Reformational Reformational thinking. Mm-hmm. How these, how each of these distinct thinkers kind of felt comfortable uh, standing in line with one another. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the the the, the fundamental principle, um, which we've which I've just touched on, this recognition that in Calvin there is a an emphasis on the total sovereignty of God over all of creation, right, uh, and uh, His law and ordinances for every aspect of creation. This this uh, this sanctifying, if you will, of being a butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Mm-hmm. This deprivileging, as Nathan mentioned, of clergy. Um, and every area of life becoming central, and so what we might mm-hmm. call the beginnings of uh, of Christian world and life view thinking. Uh, Kuiper comes along, and he's trying to, in a certain sense, sort of systematize uh, what what is unique. What is the unique contribution that 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 this side of the Reformation um, is really making in areas that Calvin didn't have the lifespan, or uh, to, to and because of his cultural milieu, didn't have the the time uh, to think through. Mm. 
um, or perhaps the insight to to think through. There were still things within Calvin that were uh, informed and shaped by the Christendom in which he lived and 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 was raised and thought and reflected. So uh, the the challenges then that the um, the Enlightenment was throwing at, uh, so-called Enlightenment was throwing at the Christian Church, Kuiper begins to respond to in terms of world and life view and recognizes in the Reformation not just a reform of church doctrine or confessions or ecclesiastical arrangements, but the reform of, uh, of Christian thinking altogether, the beginnings, the foundations of a total view of reality. And so... There are sort of four fundamental things we could say about Kuiper uh, in terms of what he was trying to say about sphere sovereignty. First, picking up with Calvin, the, the absolute sovereignty of God, uh, so that um, God cannot be limited to any particular area of life. Secondly, the, that social institutions find their origin in creation. Now, that in and of itself is quite interesting because we don't tend to... to necessarily think in those terms in the modern world we think of social institutions including the family as being socially constructed mm-hmm. uh, um, they're just sort of they arise in the cultural flux of of his- history and they just come up and appear and they have this form right now but maybe they had a different form in the past according to freud and darwin and and, mm-hmm. and engels and others um, and they may have another form in the future and of course we're in a great struggle right now culturally against that kind of constructivism, which wants to say, you know, we are going to reinvent uh, social institutions. So, uh, no, Kuiper affirms social institutions um, to be truly human institutions, and we'll come on to that in a moment with Doiverd. But you to- you often talk about pre-political institutions. Yes, right. Yeah, and that's in part what we're talking about there. Mm-hmm. That the the uh, the, the family. Um, and I would say the the uh, even the, the right to work, you know, one's right. vocation and employment. These are these are pre-political mm-hmm. uh, institutions uh, of life. They are not they're not granted to us as mm-hmm. a privilege by the state in the same way that the the church is uh, is not created by the state. Neither it is neither is it simply socially constructed. So there's a recognition uh, which is critical and foundational that social institutions though not fully disclosed in creation and recognizing that in other words we're not pretending that the uh, a fully differentiated view of the state was there in the garden of eden but the laws the ordinances that god has established for all of creation were were present if you as it were as the germ uh, right there at creation just as the the the, the what was necessary for every seed bearing plant was in the ground um the 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 law order for the structures of human society in the ordinances of god in the language of the bible were were present thirdly uh, kuiper affirmed that god's authority is a lawful authority and um he, he meant by that that there is a there is a plurality of laws uh within creation and god doesn't govern things ap- haphazardly uh, randomly, and he doesn't leave it simply to 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 chance or historical eventuation. What the what the family is going to look like, for example. So you remember that Jesus, in his discussion with the Pharisees, actually goes back not to um, the uh, uh, the intertestamental period or to the 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 the, the, the temple period of um, of Solomon's temple. 
or or back further even to even to Moses and the issue with divorce mm-hmm. certificates. Mm-hmm. He goes back to creation itself right. yep. to ground the institution of the family. So that's where we we find this this lawful authority in a plurality of law orders. Um, and fourthly, each of these structures has a right to exist, according to Kuiper, and a duty to obey God. So they can't be stamped out, swallowed up, and subsumed by uh, other spheres of life. Each sphere has a right to exist and has a duty to obey God. And we actually see this fundamental principle, don't we, right from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, that God creates all things after their kind. Mm. He doesn't muddle things up. Uh, he doesn't uh, uh, synthesize things. Um, God doesn't play evolution. Um, he, he, there is a law order. There's a law structure. Everything after its kind. Uh, and this is true um, in the structures of human society as well. So that's what Kuiper was trying to say. Um, we often talk about family, church, and state, and um, we can we can also recognize here that there isn't uh, for Kuiper a hierarchy of structures either. So it's not like you've got the law structure of the family and the state, and these report up to the church, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so and and Doyverd would, would goes on to develop this in in speaking about the fact that. Uh, uh, we would reject the Aristotelian and Thomistic view that um, uh, sort of there are higher and lower law orders in human society that need to appeal to the higher one, which was always for Aristotle and Thomas, uh, the state mm-hmm. as the highest order. That's in the end where Catholics even today get their um, doctrine of subsidiarity, although that, that terminology came well after Thomas, but it's grounded in his thinking, mm-hmm. uh, where the the... the 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 state is the highest natural order um and um it can delegate a certain amount of freedom to different areas of life these subsidiaries uh but um stuff that those can't handle they need to bump it up to the to the to the higher level so kuiper rejects that and speaks of sphere sovereignty and that means that each of these areas of life each of these uh jurisdictions if you will have their own responsibility they have their own right to exist they're governed by their own law order and they have a duty to obey god who is sovereign over them so that fundamental foundation is what kuiper laid out and doyverd was able to pick up on that and develop it and uh, that that's where we can sort of go next mm-hmm. and i'm struggling to think back if we've ever really done this on the podcast but um what do we mean by the state uh, is that the same thing that Kuiper was referring to. How would we describe that? Because we talk about the state being delegated a certain authority. Well, what what even is it? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Uh, and um, political philosophers have not always agreed about right. that. But what we can say is that uh, in in the there was a period before, especially before the distinctive emergence of the church as a free and independent institution, where um, the state as a distinct entity uh, governed by its own law order had not fully emerged. So uh, it was not, I should say, fully disclosed mm. in history. It really comes about, you know, just as we see progressive revelation in terms of the kingdom of God, and we see disclosure of the fullness of the meaning of the kingdom of God, 
um, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we also see historically a deeper disclosure of institutions and structures. And so early on, you had things like the the, the clan, the 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 what we might just call the also the extended family, the sib, uh, these different uh, expressions for undifferentiated societies where a chief or a head of the clan or the head of the family would essentially subsume multiple different roles in an undifferentiated way. So there wasn't a distinct family, a distinctive religious order, a distinctive state. Um, In that sense, the state wasn't a truly public affair. It wasn't a res publica. It was a private thing. So you would have Mm. maybe lords or barons or chiefs over different areas where they had their own private law. Our modern understanding of the state, as it's sort of been disclosed in the last 300, 400 years or so, uh, is the the notion of a uh, a territory um, that has uh, where a uh, a unified legal order over a particular territory, um, which has uh, a monopoly on sword power in that territory. In other words, it has that coercive, a unified coercive authority over a given territory, is the state. Um, so the parts of the state are. Uh, and again, in modern terminology, we would speak about in Canada, municipalities, provinces, the federal government, similar in the United States, similar terminology in the United Kingdom. Uh, those are the parts of the state. So the state is that authority which has sword power over a given territory. Uh, and it's truly a republic. In that sense, monarch, uh, constitutional monarchies are also republics because there it is a, it is a public law order it's not private law is not some sort of private affair in fact you can't really have a state imagine if canada had if if, um, in ontario we had a bunch of different areas that had different law orders because they had different barons or different uh, lords or different chiefs or whatever over them uh you couldn't have a unified state do we not see that a little bit in the uk right now though with sharia courts we we see the the as the 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 distinctive understanding of sphere sovereignty that this norm that people you know in a certain sense stumble over in creation, uh, but the more the Christian view of mm. a uh, of lex rex of law is king, mm. uh, of Christ as Lord, and of different spheres of life under His total sovereignty with a different responsibility jurisdiction right. and so on as that erodes. Uh, and that total sovereignty is denied, and you've got many gods, yes, you will start to find different law orders developing. And so Mm. in the UK, as a good example, you have got this development of uh, Sharia courts, Sharia tribunals, um, well over 100 of them now, I believe, Mm. operating supposedly under the aegis of, uh, of, of, of British law, um, but frequently operating with impunity in terms of their own um, ideas around marriage and divorce and so on and so forth. And that, that's, a, that's a hugely dangerous thing for the republic, that is for uh, the, 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 the state, for the public law order and a harmony, the role of the state being the accomplishment of a harmony of, of, of public legal interest. Hmm. And at the, at the same time, kind of growing up in parallel, I mean, the UK is a bit of a unique case, but growing up in parallel uh, to that in a lot of Western nations especially over the last almost two years, is the preponderance of so-called emergency powers. 
Mm-hmm. And I want it's uh, it's it's just it's interesting to me that the that first that emergency powers that the state has the ability and the the wherewithal to and the gall to vote these powers to itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, They're going to give them and, back uh, March twenty twenty two. Right? <laughs> we, I saw we a, went over I this. saw a movie about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm just uh, I just wonder if you can comment on. The just the very the very fact the very phenomenon of what what we've called or yeah what we've called emergency powers and why they need to be classified that way uh, what kind of mm-hmm. uh, historical precedent or philosophical be- uh, justification they might have mm. yeah well the uh, it's it's a it's a good in actually because that mm. will help us um, as we reflect on that then then talk about. Um, Doiverd's distinctive development of right. sphere sovereignty uh, that will help us sort of pass out uh, the jurisdictions, roles, and responsibilities, and some of the intertwining as well mm-hmm. of these different um, spheres of life. But I do think that what you've you've raised there is critically important. That it should be an immediate alarm bell going off when states have to start voting to themselves special or creating special acts or voting to themselves special powers and, and and sort of endlessly extending the use of those special powers because what it recognizes is when you say oh this is an emergency power or a special power is that it's actually not a power that belongs normatively mm. to the state that's right it's a tacit acknowledgement that this is not the normative role and function of the state. Um, and, uh, of course, the problem has been, and we've seen this in, in the modern world, is that once uh, civil authorities, once the state uh, has voted to itself such powers, rarely hmm. do they fully unwind those powers. Uh, and they have a way of hanging around. And, in fact, war has been one of the worst causes of new powers being introduced for the state surreptitiously as an emergency power in time of war, uh, and then those things hanging around. In fact, Ryan, even uh, many levels of taxation that we endure Mm -hmm. and suffer under today were so-called emergency measures to help fund uh, war efforts, Mm -hmm. and then they've ended up hanging around. Um, This is true in the States, true Mm -hmm. in Britain, true in Canada, and they've hung around uh, uh, and never gone away. And uh, I think we're, we've already seen efforts in various Western states to, for, for, for governments to, um, in fact, Scotland is a good example, that's tried to overtly hang on to and vote for some of these powers to be permanent mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. get ahead to handle future emergencies. So um, war has often set a very bad precedent for emergency powers. Now, you know, without, we don't want to digress too much on this show about exactly what uh, is the responsibility of family and church and state in a time of war. Um, we certainly recognize that there are certain emergencies that pertain in wartime, but what we would must, would have to insist on is that war is an anti-normative activity. Uh, it, it is not, um, it's not part of uh, God's intended function for us to be mm. killing one another and destroying one another in war. Um, and, uh, you know, there is a certain emergency involved there, and one could see that uh, certain, certain limited things would be necessary in wartime. But they should be immediately and fully, completely withdrawn 
after conflict. Um, now, you know, what we've seen of late, we're not in a war. And of course, you are actually at the beginning of this so-called crisis, um, which has been very much a man-made crisis at mm, this point, mm. uh, we were being told that it was things like, you know, not since World War Two has there been, I mean, hiding behind your sofa in a pair of pajamas, uh, um, you know, eating cornflakes and watching Netflix is not, I'm sorry, equivalent to what our grandparents went through in World War II, right. not in any way, shape or form. Uh, and so without us all getting a little bit hot under the collar about those ridiculous claims that were being made, um, nonetheless, the, the, the state's assertion uh, and its claim for itself to be able to dictate public health and uh, generate its own state of emergency, pass acts to give itself almost unlimited power over the citizenry, over a virus uh, that is, uh, is, is dangerous only to a very, very small segment of the population, the octogenarian population, and even to them, uh, you know, 96, 97, 98, depending on which study you read, survivable. Um, and, uh, and, and here we are with the state controlling business, medicine, uh, education, the family. Uh, those are indicative of an anti-normative step and that's why they are they're called what they are because even though people don't fully acknowledge god the sovereignty of god or his laws and norms for society there is an implicit recognition that as human beings as human creatures we are governed and normed in every aspect of life by law that includes the state mm. and as an intuitive sense when the state has radically overreached its jurisdiction authority and responsibility and that brings absolutely to the fore the centrality of the principle of, of sphere sovereignty and what reformational thought is trying to do. And in that sense, uh, the, the, maybe the time, finally, the moment of uh, reformational thought has truly come in, in our culture mm. for, the, for the rebuilding and recovery of a distinctly Christian view of human, uh, our human social institutions uh, under the authority of God, because we have seen the most terrible and flagrant violation of uh, uh, the normative structures in these past, you know, 20 months or so and counting. Mm -hmm. So like you said, Joe, this might be a good way to transition into uh, Herman Doiverd's thought and teaching on modal aspects. Uh, how does this understanding born out of Abraham Kuyper of um, Sphere's institutions being limited in terms of their authority, how did that inform uh, mm. Doiverd and his teaching? So uh, Doiver broadly accepted what Kuiper was saying about social institutions. That's where um, uh, Kuiper focused his thinking. But what, um, what Doiver wanted to do was to provide and consider, in light of Scripture, the, the ontological foundation for this sociological reality mm. of these different institutions. What, what was the underlying, a biblically grounded reality that provided for this principle of sphere sovereignty. This is not something that's just sort of plucked out of the air by Kuiper. Oh, here's a good idea. Let's mm. uh, let's call it sphere sovereignty. Um, no, how how was it um, how was it grounded? And so uh, he recognized that um, you know Doiver recognized that you needed creational norms. You needed a creational criteria for human social structures 
that if there are to be any truly human social facts, that needed normative criteria. By that, I mean, you know, as we sit here in the Knox Cellar and we look out of our window, um, we might see a flock of Canadian geese fly by or worse, you know, pooping all over our lawn. Um, and we can observe in a, in a sort of, as a natural fact, in a sort of scientific way, the law structure that governs the behavior of a flock of geese. I mean, they've been studied. We know how, uh, we, we have a good idea of how geese behave. Um, we can look at the, the triggers, the causal patterns of the behavior of geese. And then, of course, we can look at other birds and their migratory patterns um, and recognize, you know, at this time of the year in Canada, lots of them are getting ready to migrate south for the winter and so on, um, as are a number of human beings too, um, heading to Florida. Uh but what's the difference, maybe that's a good illustration, between mm. a, a group of human beings that you see getting into a car or a bus or on a plane to head to Florida for the winter and a flock of birds. Now, one is a natural fact that you can begin to describe causally in terms of natural laws and principles. But if you see a group of human beings boarding a plane, um, you don't know whether that group of people, just by looking, are work colleagues uh, a church group, uh, a group of, um, of uh, politicians from Ottawa. Well, maybe you could see them there if they were headed to India. You'd probably see a <laughs> turban on, uh, you know, Trudeau's head and uh, some sort of an outfit. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, if you if you saw a group of politicians, you saw a group of families, you wouldn't know just by looking from a purely natural scientific observation what social structures were operative mm. on that aircraft. You've got the social structure of um, actually a, 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 a business um, corporation, I suppose in most cases, of, you know, let's say um, uh, Southwest Airways or United Air or, or WestJet, right, with a captain and a crew who are, have a social authority on the aircraft. You might have... Um, uh, some parents with their children. So you've got the family social structure. You may have different, mm -hmm. completely different um, social structures there, but you can't simply observe with the natural eye. Oh, look, there goes um, a business institution or, you know, there goes a political party down to Florida. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, there has to be a normative criteria. In fact, even if you talk about anti-normative behavior and you said that terrible gang of thieves uh, called the provincial government, or no, I mean, uh, some, some other gang of, of, of thieves, some sort of organized crime. Um, even to describe a gang of thieves requires a normative criteria to say how is society supposed to behave right. that makes a gang of thieves anti-normative. So in mm -hmm. other words, what are truly human social facts? So mm. Doyedverd was asking that, and he identified then these different social structures that we see in society as individuality structures. I mean, so some of this sort of semi-technical or technical language, um, uh, you know, reformational thought has not been helped by a very technical and high-sounding vocabulary. And part of our task as an institute for a long time has, has been mm -hmm. trying to communicate these things in a much more understandable way. Um, but he talked about these individuality structures and basically the plurality of social institutions that we see, families, churches, states, um, uh, arts, guilds, uh, business associations, and so on, are made possible, says Doiverd, 
by the plurality of modal laws which govern them. So we've talked about, and we're going to come back to at length in this series, uh, modal functions. That is the ways in which everything functions within creation. They're not things, they're the ways in which, the modes in which things function. They are functions. So there's a plurality of functions. These are, uh, which are governed by laws, modal laws, which govern things. So there's a, that plurality makes a plurality of social institutions possible, said Doivert. And then they are also irreducible or they're sovereign. Um, the sovereignty of these social institutions is actually guaranteed by the sovereignty of modal laws and aspects. So we talked about the fact that they're uh, irreducible. Um, they can't be reduced to, these aspects can't be reduced to other aspects. Now, because of this modal functioning, um, this plurality of functioning, they can't be reduced to one another. So that guarantees the sphere sovereignty of the family mm. and the church and the state because of the operate the ways in which this modal plurality functions. So he was looking for an ontological principle or a cosmological principle in which you could ground the sociological principle um, of these uh, uh, different human institutions. And um, so Doiver talked about these different human institutions being qualified or being guided in their functioning by uh, a particular modal aspect, a particular modal function. So um, the family, the church, and the state are individuality structures, and they're irreducible to one another. They are incapable mm. of theoretical reduction. That's the critical thing. Let me just quote Doiverd very simply here. He says, neither marriage, nor family, nor blood relation, nor the free types of social existence, whether they are organized or not, can be considered as part of an all-embracing state. Every societal relationship has received from God its own structure, there's individuality structure, and mm -hmm. law of life, that's modal laws, sovereign in its own sphere, that's the irreducibility of these different spheres. The Christian world and life view, illumined by the revealed word of God, posits sphere sovereignty of the temporal life spheres over against the pagan totality idea, by which he meant that prior to this deeper understanding of the Christian principle of sovereignty and sphere sovereignty, the pagan totality idea of Aristotle, Plato, and the Western tradition really was that the state is the ultimate all-consuming, all-encompassing mm. institution which relates to the other aspects of life in a part-to-whole mm. fashion. Right. And that it makes it essentially uh, totalitarian. So um, the he talked about, very quickly, he talked about a, a f uh, for different social structure, individuality structures, social institutions, he talked about them having a founding modal function and a guiding modal function. And I know this is quite technical, might be a little bit difficult, but it's not, not particularly hard to remember. A founding function and a guiding function. And the family, as just one example, he would say is founded in the biotic function. I mean, the reason that we're here is that our parents, uh, in the context of marriage for the three of us, praise the Lord, uh, made love. Uh, and um, in the biotic function of the human person, we came about. So we're here because of the gift of human sexuality mm -hmm. in the biotic aspect of life. Uh, but that isn't the guiding function of the family. It's the founding function, but it's not what guides 
family life, what guides family life is the the love aspect, the, the, the moral aspect of life. It's a love bond that exists between husband and wife, parents and, and children. In the same way, he would say that the state um, is founded in the cultural historical uh, uh, aspect. Uh, so it, it arises, the state arises in the course of history, in the course of cultural development. Um, that's where it's founded. Human beings, in other words, come together to form states as cultural institutions that have power and authority. Uh, but they are guided, the state is guided by the jural aspect. That is, its mm -hmm. function is juridical. It's the harmony of public legal interest. Mm -hmm. So in his thought, what he does is he takes that broad principle of sovereignty and sphere sovereignty in Kuiper. Mm -hmm. he, puts, he gives it a philosophical or ontological foundation in what's the origin of plurality, what's the origin of sovereignty, it's in these modal aspects. Mm. And then he identifies a founding and a guiding function for these different aspects, for these different, uh, sorry, for these different social structures uh, so that their unique identity is preserved. That's why we can differentiate between, well, that's the family, that's the church, right. that's the state, that's a business, that's an arts guild. There are these different uh, differentiated aspects of human social life that now have a normative criteria. They're mm, not just, mm. they didn't just pull them out of the air. They're not just invented by men. Uh, they're grounded in creational law. And, right. and that's the, that, that's, and actually without normative criteria, any ability to differentiate, to, to identify actually distinctly human social facts becomes impossible. Mm. So really by learning how to, understand how these different aspects interact with each other in a normative way. Doiverd's really giving us a lens in which we can determine whether those different spheres are operating in a normative or anti-normative way. Precisely. Okay. And we exactly. And we can we can we can get into some of that. And obviously, you know, we can't make everything crystal clear in 45 minutes. Right. Um, you know, um it's taken me many years even to 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 fully develop my understanding of this. Um but we can tease out the essential basics and structure mm. that allow us to think accurately as ordinary people mm. uh, about these issues and build a distinctly Christian mind um, with respect to them. The uh, perhaps perhaps the, the the one of the the unique gifts of of reformational thought actually prevent helps us to to avoid the pitfall of deifying. Uh, and um, overestimating in importance any of these human institutions, but keeping them in their place, mm. in their proper place, because what Doiverd is arguing, and also what Kuiper argued, is that the, the sovereignty of each sphere limits the others. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of it. Because they don't blend and bleed into each other, because they're not based in a hierarchy, their irreducibility, their sovereignty, the plural, their plurality and their sovereignty means that we have a basis on which to distinguish and differentiate these institutions mm. um, and uh, prevent them and make sure that they limit one another. So what puts a limit on the state? Well, what limits the state is the sphere sovereignty of the family and the church and free enterprise and so on. 
what limits the family and it needs limiting the family too if you've got what what would we call a a, 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 a cultural or, or social institution of a sort um that uh fails to limit the family and that bleeds into the area of the state mm-hmm. that's uh... what would we call that well, that, that's I'm the, testing them that's now. The mafia. Yeah. That's the mafia. That's exactly. Like, you don't you know, never go against the family. Right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. You don't go against the family. Law is not king. Family is king. Right. It's not the sovereignty of God. Family is king. Therefore, mafias uh, develop. What happens if the church itself fails to stay with as, a, as an institution? I mean, fails to stay within its God ordained limit. What have you got? What do we call it? Ecclesiocracy. We have that medieval picture where the church is trying to constantly sprinkle its pixie dust on everything in in creation and instant and bring it under the aegis the rubric mm-hmm. of the institutional church pope is excommunicating the king precisely we have all of those kinds of historical problems um now uh Doyverd points out he says this is in with regard to the biggest problem of our time which is statism we talk about statism he says it is a totalitarian fantasy however to assume that the state like a modern Leviathan, can make all these power types, things like the family and that we've talked, these other power types that we've talked about, subservient to its political purposes, that it can absorb them within its own sphere of power, yet permit them to retain their distinctive character. End quote. So what he's saying is it's this this myth that if if we allow the state to uh, treat things in parts the whole fashion if we refuse to keep the state in its place it's a totalitarian myth it's a it's a fantasy that if it makes all these other jurisdictions these sovereign spheres subservient to itself that it will then somehow protect the distinctive character of those things now that is what liberal democracy promised liberal democracy promised that it would subsume all of this Mm. all these spheres of life and it would, but in doing so, secular liberal democracy would maintain their distinctive character. It's done the opposite. It's it's actually steadily destroyed them. Um, now, of course, that doesn't mean there isn't a certain amount of intertwinement um, between family, church, and state. Let's keep it simple and stick to those three f- uh, mm-hmm. f- for a moment in this last mm-hmm. couple of minutes. Um, family, church, and state obviously are intertwined. There's a technical language that Doiverd uses. He talks about in capsis. It's his own kind of invent. What well, I think he's borrowed it from biology, but it's encaptic uh, interlacement. But let's just talk about intertwinement. Sounds by- like Star Trek. <laughs> it does sound like a Star Trek episode. <laughs> Has something out of the mouth of Commander Data. Yeah. It's <laughs> um, so he he basically says that we of course we see these institutions intertwined with one another so the so the church for example is made up of families but the the law order for the church isn't destroyed or undermined by the fact that there are families in it and neither does the family lose its internal law structure and become the church because it's interlaced with the church no they have that and that's what he meant by this intertwinement this interlace this interlacing is that we we understand that the family in the life of the church is still the family. It's not the church in its internal law. I can't excommunicate my wife because she burnt my dinner on you know s- Saturday afternoon. Um, uh, and the 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 church um, can't um, uh, discipline my children and um, determine the course of their education. That's for parents. So uh, 
you, you can see how the intertwinement doesn't mean that the internal law sphere of both is, 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 is destroyed. Um, so Doiverd says, and I quote, such intertwinement is impossible if these forms of power that we've talked about are viewed and treated as parts of state power, where the church, science, and art are denatured by the state with totalitarian political ideology, they lose their typical social power. Um, and uh, let me give, say something else. From I'm, I'm quoting now from a Christian theory of social institutions. He says, because of its internal structural characteristics, the family cannot be part of state or church. By its very inner nature, the family is radically and typically distinct from these latter two. Ties to state and church can cut right through the center of the family. For example, the parents are of different nationalities or belong to different church communities. Inside the state or church, the family has merely an encaptic function. That's that interlacement I talked about. Mm -hmm. It can be either closely or loosely tied to state or church. The church can likewise enter into a typically close structural intertwining with the state, yielding these figures of state church. So... And that's a discussion for another time. But there you can have, even with, for example, the Church of England, where you have an intertwining uh, in that structure of state mm -hmm. and church, the church does not lose its distinctive character and neither does the state. The church is not the state. The state is not the church. So, Joe, you've mentioned before that uh, it's, it's possible that we absolutize certain aspects of reality. I'm wondering if it's possible to absolutize different structures uh, themselves within creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. A good place to, <laughs> to finish. Uh, yeah, we, we've talked about the way in which we can end up lifting out an aspect over exaggerating its centrality and importance. And I know that a moment ago I said I'd comment on that. So thank you for bringing me back to it. Uh, it is actually possible to look at a, a, a structure within creation, greatly over-exaggerate its importance and significance in relation to other structures, and it ultimately become almost an object of worship. It actually becomes mm. deified, deification, so we can actually take uh, modal aspects and deify them, and then we can end up uh, taking structures uh, within human society and literally deifying those. G.K. Chesterton talked about the danger of man worshipping the world, but above all, worshipping the strongest thing in the world. Um, one of our fellow, fellows, uh, Willem Auenail, has commented beautifully on this, and uh, let me quote him as I close here. He says, in socialism, the state is deified. So this is now looking at different political uh, ideologies. In libertarianism, the individual. In communism, the party. And in national socialism, the nation is deified. Only in a truly biblical situation, the state as well as the individual, the party as well as the nation, are directed toward God. We do not serve the state, but the state and we are to serve God. Therefore, every nation-state that in principle and in practice functions out of the acknowledgement of Christ's kingship, also within political life, is a manifestation, no matter how weak, of the kingdom of God." Mm. End quote. That's a great way to finish because ultimately that's what both Kuiper and Doiverd were driving at, that the only um, totalizing principle that is allowed in a Christian world and life view, the only um, all-encompassing principle that is allowed is the sovereignty of God and his kingdom. Not the state, that cannot be all-encompassing, not the church, not the family, the kingdom of God alone, 
And as our hearts are regenerated in Christ and we're brought into that kingdom, we're redirected in all these aspects, in our family, in the school, in the state, in every area, and oriented towards Christ and his sovereignty in these distinct spheres. And they obey, they, they are kept in order of their kind. And then each after their kind, in terms of the law structure God has established, they are to obey and walk in obedience to God. Mm. None should be exaggerated to the point it swallows the others. And that fundamentally is the meaning of sphere sovereignty. Great. Thanks so much for that, Joe. And we've gone a bit long on time with this episode, but thank you for sticking with us. And we hope we're helping you think Christianly through all of the issues we're seeing today in our culture. This has been the podcast for cultural reformation, reminding you for from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory. It's passed down as a prophecy. Every year about this time